Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of Women of the Wild. My name is Ashley Winchester, and I'm your host. As per usual, I'd like to start off by thanking those of you who support the show. This would not be possible without you. If you're interested in helping out, head on over to womenofthewild.com forward slash support and check out the options there. I'm going to start adding a little something something to the beginning of these shows as well. It might be a shout out to a small business, a quote or a poem, or just some thoughts that I've had. If you want to shoot some ideas my way, or if you know a female-led business that could use a little shout out, please feel free to send something my way. For this episode, I'd like to shout out Kate George. She's an illustrator and surface pattern designer who is also a badass adventurer. Her designs are really amazing, and she has products like buffs, wallets, notebooks, Nalgene bottles, stickers, Kula cloths, pretty much anything that you would want to look really cute. I literally have not taken off my fruit salad buff since I got it because it's too freaking cute. Find her on Instagram at KateGeorgePNW or on her website at www.kategeorgepnw.com. Links for Kate George are in the show notes. Today's guest is Ellen Falterman, also known as Ellen Magellan. I can't quite describe who she is in this short intro, but I'll try and hopefully I'll do her some justice. I guess I would call her an expeditionist, if that makes sense. Embarking on multi-month expeditions, the most recent of which involved paddling a canoe over 2,000 miles. Ellen is a true adventurer, and every experience leads her to dream even bigger. In this episode, we talk a lot about her expeditions. We chat about the loss of a family member and how it spurred her to set off on a new solo adventure. And we discuss the next big expedition she has in the works. Ellen drops some knowledge bombs throughout this episode as well. Trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on the three Ds. Please welcome Ellen Falterman. I was raised on a farm in rural East Texas. Uh, It was a tree farm, so we just had a lot of woods and chickens and just like a really rural existence like the closest grocery store is 30 minutes away you know uh there's no restaurants there's a school that's about it it's just community um like we don't even have post office we have to put the next town over on our mail so that was i I had a really great childhood i can't like it was amazing uh and i my parents listened to my last interview and my dad was like you didn't say more about your childhood. <laughs> and, uh, and it's funny because I, I felt like my childhood was very normal because you don't know anything else as a kid. You think that everyone has this. And it wasn't until I became an adult that I realized that I, I did have an unusual childhood and I had really fun, supportive parents, you know, like they, like my dad was an airline pilot, so he was gone a lot. But when he was home, he was really home. He, he would be gone for four days, but then he'd be home for f- three or four days straight. And so, we get, you know, I never felt like he was gone. And then my mom was a teacher. So when we were in school, she was in school. We were out, she was out. And they were just, just really fun, loving people. Like always, like my mom, like as a kid, would put down freezer paper on the floor and we would just like watercolor on the freezer paper or we would just uh like build stuff my dad built a whole tree house uh with like ladders and and doors and windows and all these cool pulleys and just i think that my parents approach to life had a really big effect on how i approach life uh, just really unique fun loving people and i i mean I can't complain. It was just, it was amazing. The only downside to my childhood was that I I did have an older brother, Patrick, who was five years older than me. And he 
was just a, um, a problem child, I guess. Uh, like, you know, just got into trouble and ran around and uh, disappeared for a while and like didn't let us know that he was alive kind of thing. And that was, you know, a, an issue. But my parents, again, were, were just, just such good parents that it didn't affect me as much as it should have. They kind of like kept the bad stuff from me until I was older. So I just, I really attribute a lot of my, my, my success in my adult life to my childhood. It was just amazing. I'm just blessed. Yeah, that's, um, I was raised in a similar way. Growing up, it was like, well, this is normal. This is how everybody's raised, right? But, you know, when you're an adult and you look back and you're like, my parents let me run around by myself or with my siblings barefoot with like, I, you know, I had a little BB gun that I'd carry around at like six years old and was just running yeah. around in the hills, climbing yeah. trees and getting into trouble. So yeah. That's it, awesome. It, yeah. It's like, it's really funny looking back on that now and kind of listening to other kit, you know, other people around you and talking about their childhoods. And it's like, wow, I was really lucky. <laughs> yeah. Super. Really and, and, and it's not like, I mean, I feel like you could still be raised in a city and get some of those things, you know, like by taking trips, like, Hey, let's take camping trips on the weekend. But the parents have to work a lot harder to facilitate that if they don't live in that environment. Yeah, absolutely. And that probably um, spurred your curiosity and love of exploration too. I imagine. Uh, yes. And it's funny because my parents kind of said the same thing where they're like, we don't know why our children are so adventurous. And then people visit our house and they're like, well, obviously, uh, duh. <laughs> like my, my, my mom is an artist and she painted a massive mural on the wall in the boys room, took up the whole room. And it was like a rainforest, an Amazon rainforest. And, uh, you know, I had like, uh, the, the vines hanging down and birds and flowers and bugs and there was like a panther hidden in the forest and it all glue in the dark so she you could turn on the off the lights and like the panther's whiskers would glow in the dark and the bugs <laughs> would glow in the dark the spider web would show up it was just like and then people walk in and they're like well yeah no wonder your Patrick took off to the Amazon look at what he grew up in he literally grew up in a, a painted jungle like we're dreamers yeah. <laughs> it's so funny because my, my mom was also, is also an artist and, uh, I had a jungle themed room when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Everything like she made these huge leaves, like the monstera leaves that like hung down as my curtains. Um, oh my gosh. You, yeah. you, your parents and my parents would probably get along. That's why we get along already. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about like your adulthood now. What do you do for a living? Um, I'm a flight instructor. I've been a flight instructor for five years now. I got my ticket when I was 19 and I'm 25 now. Took a year off. Um, and that's really all I've done. I've, I've worked some odd jobs while here and there, but that's flight instructing has always been my main source of income. Uh, and I learned how to fly when I was in high school because my dad was in the Air Force and he became an airline pilot when I was five. And so I've always been around airplanes my whole life. We built an airplane together when I was 13, my dad and I. Um, and then I got my license in, in a bigger airplane. And I've just always been around airplanes, always flew airplanes. We have a grass strip at our house uh, that my dad built. So a grass strip with a little hanger so he doesn't have to go to the airport and, and talk to people when he wants to fly. <laughs> Love it. So, uh, 
I, yeah, I've just, I've been, I've learned how to fly before I learned how to drive a car. Uh, just, I've always, and again, super blessed, like that, just to have that opportunity. I mean, I, that was just random pulled, you know, random that I had that life and I'm, you know, running with it. I'm, I'm going to take advantage of that. And, and I love it now. I mean, it's not like it was ever forced on me. My, my dad never, I mean, my other two brothers didn't fly and I was really the only one who, who picked it up seriously. And like, it wasn't forced on me. I love doing it. And I actually really love teaching. I found a passion for teaching. Some days I like teaching more than I like flying. Uh, it's just like, I feel like if I teach these people properly, then I'm saving their lives. Um, essentially. I mean, I'm, not only am I saving their life, but I'm saving the lives of their passengers and their family and whoever they're going to fly with after they get their license. I, I think that teaching, it, 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 it's very important. And uh, my, my brother actually died in an airplane crash in 2016. My oldest brother, uh, he was flying dad's plane and crashed. He had a passenger who also died. And uh, after that happened, I was like, I'm never getting in a little airplane again. I'm never setting foot in general aviation again. I'm done. And I didn't fly for uh, <laughs> really only like three months. Uh, and I got back in the air because I was sitting there thinking and I was like, look, I cannot instruct and that's fine. But I know my students are still at the airport. I know they're still learning how to fly. And I know that the people teaching them might not be teaching them properly because a lot of instructors are not doing it for the passion they're just doing it for the hours um and so i went back to teaching because i felt like it was important to teach people properly and and again like i feel like i'm saving their life it the, the stakes got so much higher after that accident and my my job became so much more important to me uh and i i never i, I don't really ever see myself leaving instructing and being an airline because it's not important to me it's important to me to teach people how to fly safely airline pilots just it's not i'm not making a difference yeah that's a that's a heavy responsibility to have um teaching people how to fly i mean you are that's a that's a lot to take on and you're 10 years younger than me um so i can't you know like when i was 25 i i don't think that i would have been able to handle that kind of responsibility well i've been doing it since i was 19 so i already had a base but I've never known anything different. I never stopped to think that I could ever do anything different. It's, it's what I do. And, and the more I do it, the more passionate I get about it. And I've got, it's weird because the other people I went to flight school with who are my age, they're, they're corporate regional pilots by now. Some of them are airline pilots and they're like, why are you still instructing? And I'm like, I like it. And they're like, uh, weird. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I don't, I, I, it's why fix what ain't broken, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I don't know. I like, I, I love flying. I love being a passenger. I've never actually flown myself. Um, but it's one of those things where it's like, I feel like you could never get tired of it. Like that feeling of the takeoff and like looking out the window around you, like I'm always glued to the window when I You would be a great student. I want to teach <laughs> you already because uh, people lose that. And, and when I have a brand new student who wants to be a career pilot, they want to be an airline pilot and I take them up for the first time and they have that moment, I go, don't ever forget this. Don't ever lose this because you're going to make this your career and eventually somewhere along the way, you're going to stop having that 
that magical feeling and don't ever lose it. That like, you have to remind yourself that flying is fun and, and instructors get really serious and I have to, and my students get really serious too. And they, they start beating themselves up and, and I'm like, look, man, remember, remember just two months ago, you didn't know, you know, hardly anything. And look at what you've learned now. And, and remember how fun that remember when we went and go flew over your house. You want to go check something out of the, in the air. You know, I try to keep it fun. Well, at the same time, keeping it safe, I think that aviation now is really sterile. There's no, like, uh, joy in it. it there's not, not a lot of um, art in it. Like, I'm a poet, and I, I feel like I have to hide my artistic side as a pilot. When the original pilots were dreamers, the original pilots who first flew airplanes in 1903 were dreamers and artists, and, and people looked at them like we were crazy. And somewhere along the way, aviation lost that and it became a really sterile environment and I, I, I want to bring that back yeah I think that's that's noble um, and it is it's true it's like it used to be something that was magical and now it's very normal and every day and and you know people you like they commute that way you know they commute by flying they like yeah but- I mean <laughs> I got 1,500 flight hours and I'm sitting in the back of, of a commercial airliner with my face glued to the window. I love it. You know, and I know, and I know all those passengers with their windows shut. I got more hours than them. Oh, <laughs> and, sure. you know, they've lost the, they've lost the awe. And I think the same thing, like, uh, you know, space travel is going to be a thing in the next 20 years or, or something like that. And it's, it's just interesting for me to think about because I think about the first time that we have commercial space flight, everyone's going to be like, wow, I saw the earth from space. It's going to be like, you know, the highlight of their lives. Have you seen the earth from space yet? You know, you got to do it before you die. It's crazy. And then eventually it's just going to be like, oh, okay, there's earth from space. Close the window, just like we do on commercial flights. Yeah. Oh, that's a scary thought. I don't <laughs> I know, but it's true. It is true. It is true. Um, well, let's um, kind of move on to some of your expeditions that you've that you've been on you have been on multiple multi-month expeditions um throughout your life which is crazy because there's you've done things at you know by the age of 25 that most people would not even dream of doing ever um so can you kind of like give us a quick rundown of the like different (laughs) expeditions you've been on and then we'll kind of focus on the most recent ones Sure. Uh, so I've done five expeditions at this point. Um, my first one was with my older brother, Patrick, in 2014. And he was living in Brazil at the time in a 400-pound wooden canoe. And I took a three-month visa straight out of high school almost to go visit him and, and paddle around for three months in the Amazon basin. And we had this uh, idea to go up to a place called the Serra de Aracá, which is this plateau in southern Venezuela slash northern Brazil. And it's called El Dorado. Uh, and there's got like waterfalls coming off of it. There's supposed to be buried treasure there. Uh, there's stories of people being taken there to get murdered. There's like a lot of Indiana Jones stuff going on at this Serra de Aracá. So we were like, let's go. Uh, and so it was uh, an 18-day canoe trip upstream on the Rio Negro, which is the largest tributary in the Amazon. And then you have to take some other smaller tributaries to get to the Seja de Aracá. And we were traveling upstream for 18 days. And our plan was to get to the Seja and walk around for a couple of weeks. And the whole time we were going upstream, we would um, be drying meat the whole way so that we had meat to eat when we got to the Seha. And that's what we did. We were shooting monkeys, uh, parrots, uh, catching fish, uh, 
uh, cuchilla, which is like this large rat. And we were drying the meat on the canoe and salting it and drying it. And um, so we were two days away from the Seha. Our plan was all going well. We had enough food to hike around there. We were just gonna stash our boat and hike around for a couple weeks. And uh, we could see the Seha. It was like right there. We were almost there. We were like two days away. And the problem is with those really, really small tributaries is the moment that it rains on the Seha, the water comes instantly down the waterfall and it creates flash flood levels in the tributaries. And so uh, it rained up there. And I remember that morning I was uh, washing dishes and the water was to my knees. And by the time I was done washing dishes, the water was almost to my waist. And I was like, oh, well, the water sure is rising quite rapidly. Time to hit the river. <laughs> and <laughs> we did. And uh, our canoe got swamped in the flash flood because it got caught next to a tree. And it got swamped off the sides. So we lost all our gear. Um, we almost lost the boat. I almost lost Patrick because um, he grabbed the bow line of the rope, but the bow line got wrapped around him and pulled him underwater. And so he was underwater for like almost a minute. I had no idea because I was three bends downriver because I got washed away. It was a whole situation. Um, we ended up rendezvousing on the bank. Patrick had this big gash around his middle from rope burn. He still had a scar the whole rest of his life from that. And, uh, and the, the canoe was stuck, trapped underneath the water. And uh, we, we just had to wait for the water to... To, to go down before we get the canoe out. It was like stuck under there, it was trapped. So we played cards <laughs> because I, the one bag that I rescued that had my passport in it also had a deck of cards in it. So we were naked because the water was freezing and we had to dry our clothes. And at that point in a survival situation, you don't care if you're naked in front of your sibling, I'm just naked with our clothes hanging, playing cards. It was just ridiculous in the middle of the jungle. We hadn't seen anyone for two weeks. Uh, just ridiculous situation, uh, but we ended up getting the boat floating. Uh, we had one hatchet because it was tied to the seat. We cut down poles in the forest and pulled our way downstream to the first village, which was like three days downstream. So we didn't have any food for like three days. And we were just like sleeping on leaves that we had cut down uh, because our hammocks were wet. Uh, that we, we, we rescued some gear on the way down. We rescued our backpacks, but everything's wet. But anyway, it was a whole situation. We made it out alive, barely. And then we went hitchhiking around for another month because my visa still had another month on it. So he's like, well, let's go hitchhiking. So we did. <laughs> made uh, it out, right? Yeah, and we, like, we bust on the streets. We made uh, wire art. Uh, we sold wire art on the streets. We just kind of did the, the thing that my brother's been doing for the last six years that he was down there. Um, and it was blast. I was 18. So I was like super impressionable. And that left a big, that trip was like big for me to, and also I got to be with my brother as an adult because he's five years older than me. So I never really got to bond with him as an adult. So I'm really glad that trip happened, especially in light of everything else that happened later. Uh, so that was in 2014, Amazon disaster canoe trip. <laughs> um, and then in 2016, uh, I, I obviously I got the wild hair after that trip uh, and I wanted to do a trip, but I didn't want to be on the water anymore because I was still a little bit scarred from the disaster trip. And so I decided to take a bicycle tour because I'm really confident on a bicycle. And I didn't even know people did bicycle tours. I was just like, I could put bags on my bike. And then I started Googling and I was like, Oh, this is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, I didn't know anything. 
So I was like, oh, cool. And I, I was dating someone at the time. And so I kind of lassoed him into coming with me uh, from England to Greece. Uh, it was a, about 5,000 miles, four months uh, on a tandem bicycle. Because I wasn't, I was, I was 20, I turned 21 in France. And I wasn't confident being by myself. And I wasn't confident on the water. So I chose a bicycle and I chose a partner. And I did that trip and it was great. And two months later, uh, after I got back to the States is when Patrick died. And I, I got to talk to him about the bicycle trip and, and he was like kind of quizzing me a little bit. He's like, so like, where did you sleep? Did you sleep in hostels? And I was like, no, man, we, we just slept under bridges and in pastures and sheep fields, beaches, wherever we could. We didn't, we never paid for a site. And he was like, he's like, I taught you well, basically. Approved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He approved. And, uh, and so that, and then he, and then two months later he died and, uh, and that kind of just, that just wrecked my whole life. It changed the whole course of my life. I was going to be an actor. I was going to go to Hollywood and get an agent and start doing acting. Um, because Patrick believed in me, he believed that I could do it. And so I was going to go do it. And then after he died, I went back to flight instructing and I was flight instructing and still I could tell I was like living in a dream, you know, I was just like on autopilot and I was like, this is, I can't, I gotta, I gotta do something different. And, uh, I was thinking about what I wanted to do on the one year anniversary of Patrick's accident, which was September 3rd. And so September 3rd, 2017 was coming around one year. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to go to work that day. Obviously, you know, I'm not going to go fly airplanes that day. It's just not a good idea. Well, maybe I'll, I'll take the day off work. Okay. What am I going to do? I'll go ride my bike, I guess. I like riding my bike. And I was like, this just seems kind of like Wayne. So I was like, maybe I'll take several days off. Maybe I'll take the whole week off and kind of go do like a mini trip. And then I was like, maybe I could just take like three months off and maybe make, make that anniversary happen, like right in the middle of everything. And so I woke up one morning, literally just like woke up and I was like, I'm going to do the Mississippi river. And, and I, it's just because I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I, I have it now. So I called up my friend, uh, Wes Hansen, who's another expedition traveler. Um, and he was the only other person I knew that did anything like that other than my brother. And I said, I want to do the Mississippi. And he said, how about you check out the Missouri? It's a little bit longer. It's less known. Just check it out. And I did. And I was sold. And the Missouri River is actually the longest river in North America by 200 miles. And uh, I, in my opinion, now that I've done both, the Missouri is actually more physically challenging because you have massive reservoirs um, that are, you're not on a river anymore. You're on a lake and you have big chop and you can't see the other side of the lake. It took me weeks across these lakes. And those lakes will break you down and build you back up and break you down again. Uh, it, was, it was a physical challenge. It was a mental challenge. The Missouri was a, a more difficult physically. I think than the Mississippi. So anyway, I, I did the Missouri river in 2017 and just like I planned right in the middle of the trip uh, was the one year anniversary of my brother's death. And I was right in the middle of doing something cool, just like I wanted to be doing. Yeah. And you, and, sorry to, I don't want to interrupt yeah, you, but you did yeah. these solo, right? Yes, I did. That was my first solo trip. I, I really wanted to be alone because I was grieving. I mean, I'm still grieving. I'll always be yeah. grieving, but it was fresh and I really just needed to be alone. And, and I, so I got into a kayak. I borrowed my friend West's kayak. I didn't have a boat. I was like, I want to do the, the river. I don't have a boat. And he was like, 
take mine because he he and Patrick knew each other and I think he wanted to do something for Patrick too and giving me the boat to borrow was his way of doing something for him um so I was in this kayak I'd never kayaked before in my life uh and it was a really nice uh epic kayak are you familiar with epic kayaks I'm not familiar with any kind of like paddle sport anything oh well it's apparently it's apparently like one of the most expensive kayaks you could buy and I had no idea I was just like oh and, uh, and it's really narrow because it's sort of a racing kayak. And I just thought all kayaks were this narrow and unstable. And I just did it 2,300 miles, 100 days in this boat I had never really been in before. And, uh, and on water that I was kind of scared of. I still have a fear of water, but it's more of a relationship than a fear. Uh, yeah, and I did that trip. And I got to the end of the river. And I had not found any answers to any questions I had. I found answers to questions I didn't know I had. I was more lost than when I started. I had broken up with my partner on the river, so I didn't have anywhere to live. So I bought a van, a van that I had met on the river, and I started living in it because I didn't have anywhere to go after the river. My, my whole life, I, I was planning on going back to my normal life and going back and doing everything like, like everything would be okay after that. Like I would be healed from my grief and everything would be fine and I could move on with my life. And it, none of that happened. I, I was totally lost when I got to the end of the river, but that's where I needed to be. I needed to be lost. I was 22. I was just, my world was shaken. And so I moved into this van and I traveled around in it in the United States for like a year. I went up the West coast. I was going to go to Alaska, but my van was from it was 94 Chevy. So I really didn't trust it on the Alaskan highway. So yeah. I just went as far north as Vancouver and then made my way back down the Mississippi, Missouri River. Um, and I found a river community when I came down the Missouri. Uh, they all kind of know each other. And I, those people became my family, my, my non-blood, my river family. And they're still my river family to this day. I found a whole group of people there that they will always be my my main like friend group are those people um and uh when i was living in the van i i got the idea to do the mississippi river because when i got when you get to the end of the missouri river it's in st louis missouri and the end of the missouri is the confluence of the mississippi river so basically if you're going the longest river system is would 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 be from the headwaters missouri all the way down to the gulf of mexico that would be the longest river system trip you can do in the united states so what a lot of people do well not a lot of people but anyone who's doing a source to sea descent of the missouri river will end up on the mississippi so i got to the mississippi and i was like whoa this river is i don't know this river this river doesn't know me i don't know this water i've been you know Missouri I started at the headwaters I, I knew it from a baby it knew me when I was brand new we got to know each other along the way and then you get dumped into the Mississippi and, and I was like whole new river I got whole new river vibes this river doesn't know me I don't know it I gotta go back to the beginning so the next year I came back and I went to the headwaters of the Mississippi so I could get to know that river so that by the time I got to St. Louis when the Mississippi is a big river we, we knew each other you know yeah and um uh, so that was in 2019. I put in at the headwaters of the Mississippi and I rode, I was in a rowing canoe now and I rode down to St. Louis and I was planning on going all the way to Texas last year. But last year, my grandma got diagnosed with stage four cancer while I was on the water. So I got off the water in St. Louis. I left my boat, I left my gear, I left everything there to be with her. And she did die two months later. So I'm glad I did that.
Yeah. And then this summer I came back and my boat, my gear was just where I left it in my friend's basement. And I picked it up, went to the store, got some food and kept going. So this year I did St. Louis where I left off all the way down to the Gulf. And then the plan was, which I did, was to start heading west along the coastline to Trinity Bay, which is near Galveston, then go upstream on a small river called the Trinity River um, to, uh, to where I grew up, basically. And also, and not only that, it was uh, where Patrick crashed his airplane. He crashed his airplane in the river um, by accident, of course. And so I wanted to go to that exact spot where he crashed because I felt like that's what started it all. And so this is where I need to end. Yeah. And I did. How did it feel when you got to that end site? Uh, When I thought of it or when I actually got there? When you actually got there. You know, it, all of the emotions happened on the Trinity, not necessarily the day that, because there's the day when you get there, there's a lot of people and, you know, my parents were there and I I was kind of numb at that point. All of my like, sort of spiritual happenings with that incident happened the moment I got on the Trinity River and started heading upstream. It took me about three or four days to go upstream on the Trinity from the bay to the crash site. And that was where I had my, my sort of reckoning with, with what happened. And, and it was just uh, to be on the water where, you know, I know that this is the water that, that, you know, the water didn't kill him, the crash did, but just to know that this water was like flowing over them and the airplane. It, I had this weird thought at one point when I, when I rode literally over the spot and I just, there's like this moment where I was like, Ooh, I don't want to run into them. I don't, Ooh, I don't want to catch my boat on the airplane. And then I'm like, that's so stupid. They pulled the airplane out. They're not here anymore. And there was, it was just like this moment where I was like, my brain was like, you're over the spot. They're there. They're under there. And uh, it was just, it was, it was interesting. I'm still kind of processing it. It was only a month ago. Yeah. Sorry to bring it up and, and make you emotional. Hey, look, if we can't talk about things, honestly, then what are we here for? What are, what are we on the earth for if we can't talk about things? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's why this podcast exists is for stories like yours. Um, because I think that, you know, these things deserve to be talked about and, and I think that everyone's affected by grief and, uh, and this forces me to talk about it. And I think it's good for me. And I think it's good for other people too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. I, I absolutely agree. Um, so kind of switching gears on a lighter note, yep. you said you had a kayak for the Missouri and then I, what was it? A canoe for the Mississippi? Why did you decide to switch from one to the other? Um, so the reason I was in a kayak in the first place is because of disasters trip in the Amazon. Uh, I didn't want to be in a canoe anymore because that's why we lost our gears. Cause we're in a 400 pound wooden canoe uncovered, just ridiculous, you know, trash bags, n- nothing's tied down. It, it was totally ridiculous. And so I didn't want to be in a canoe again cause I was still scarred. I wanted to have hatches. So, and I, and I did, I, I flipped on the Missouri river on Fort Peck Lake. And since I was in a kayak, I only lost a toothbrush. That was literally the only thing I lost. So my plan worked great. Um, I really liked how it performed in a swamping scenario because there are a lot of big waves on those, those massive reservoirs. 
Um, however, I did not like being in the kayak all day for eight to 10 hours. It was like, I was never using my legs. My arms are wimpy, you know, my legs are the, were the biggest muscles in our body. So I'm just sitting there all day. I feel like I'm in a wheelchair. I didn't like the double bladed paddle, constant dripping on my lap. Mm. I'm wet all day. My hands are wet all day. I just did not like, it wasn't comfortable to be in. So I was like, I need to go back to canoe life. And, but I'm not, uh, I'm not big enough for a canoe, for a normal size canoe. Um, I looked at a really small canoe. I looked at like a 12 foot canoe, single person canoe with a rudder. And I was like, okay, maybe I can do this and put like a cover over it. And then I saw someone with a rowing rig. We were doing a Missouri River rendezvous with a bunch of my Missouri River friends. And this guy showed up in this massive wooden canoe with a rowing rig and he was rowing. And I had never seen anyone row in my whole life except for on TV, like in the Olympics. I didn't even know you could row a canoe. I was like, that's so cool. That's what I need because now, now you're using physics, you're using leverage. And I don't know why rowing isn't more popular, especially among small women who, you know, I could not handle a 17 foot aluminum grumming canoe by myself with a single bladed paddle. I'm 105 pounds. That's just math. Like it doesn't matter how strong I am. I just can't. And so, but with the oars, I could. And so I put oars on the, my, it was my family's canoe that my dad had growing up. I took out the center thwarts, the, the center structure and put the rowing rig in. And I'd never rowed before in my life. I taught myself how to row and off I went. And my plan worked perfectly. Uh, I was able to maneuver the boat, even though it was way too big for me. And I felt a lot more stable in the canoe with the oars because they're nine foot oars, two nine foot oars sticking out the sides of your boat are like outriggers. So my canoe was super stable. I can go fast. I could, I could do a 180, like no problem. I was just, I feel so comfortable with the oars and it was a really good decision. I, again, I don't know why it's not more popular. I think when we had our like little chat that we did a couple of weeks ago, you were talking about how, you know, there's, there's not really a lot of women who do these kinds of things. Um, you know, especially with like a large canoe like that. And you were like, it's totally doable for somebody who, you know, is small like you, who, you know, as a female, it's totally possible. Um, and I thought that was so interesting because I feel like, you know, for me, I think about it, I'm like, I'm a small person too. I'm like, I don't want to handle a huge canoe solo. <laughs> but, Single bladed paddle. Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like, you know, you, there's ways to get around that. So if you, if you, if you're out there and you want to be on the water solo in a canoe like this, like it's totally possible. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you, how do you handle logistics like food and water? Um, you just have to plan ahead. Uh, know when you're doing a current resupply, just know when your next resupply is just look at the map and see, you know, where the closest grocery store that's close to the river is. Uh, and you, you buy accordingly. I, I buy an, in just regular dollar store, grocery store, whatever along the way. And, and the same with water. I'll pick up water at parks, at marinas. I, I've been known to literally just like walk up to people's houses with an empty jug and knock on their door and, and look pathetic. Um, and, and, for, and usually I try to find, you know, I know their home, like I see them on their porch or I see them out watering their plants or something, you know, I, I don't quite make it as random as it sounds, but you'd have to be resourceful. And you can't filter your water on the Mississippi River. It's too muddy and it's too polluted. 
uh, there's just no filter that's going to filter out all the pesticides. So you have to carry your own water. Uh, and you just have to plan accordingly. I mean, I don't plan a lot of things, but I plan enough ahead of time to get me to the next resupply. And then when I get there, I plan the next resupply. And you just do that enough times and you'll go far. Yeah. You had mentioned before that you made like a, a river family when you were out on the Missouri. Do you, when you're doing this stuff solo, do you rely heavily on the kindness of strangers and meeting people? I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. <laughs> Uh, the famous line yeah um, yeah yeah no definitely I definitely I wouldn't have I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the kindness of strangers uh and, and as a woman you, you especially traveling alone you do have to be wary and trust your gut instinct but at the same time mostly everyone wants to help you and you know I've met nothing but just kind people people that just they see you doing that and I think they have always wanted to do something like that too. And so all they want to do is help you because it makes them feel good because they didn't get to do something like that with their life. And I've just, it's really heartening, especially, I mean, I, I did a river descent in 2020 during a really turmoil time in our country, a presidential election. And I was, you know, deep in Trump country as a young woman with dreadlocks. Like I, you know, I didn't, I expected to maybe get some, some negative feedback, but I met nothing but kind people. And it doesn't matter who your political party is. I, I didn't, I didn't see any of that. I didn't see any of the hate. I didn't see any of the, the anger towards young people. All I saw was people wanting to help me. And it was just really heartening, especially in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a rough year to take on a big endeavor like that. Yeah. Yeah. And especially with COVID too, you have that on top of it all. So now people might be less likely to approach you because they're worried about. So I had a uh, one river angel who uh, I was at a boat ramp and I thought that boat ramp might have water and it didn't. And so I was like, huh. and the dollar store was like two miles away. And uh, this woman in her car was like, do you need help? Cause I was walking around kind of looking lost. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, yeah, actually I could use some water. And she went to the dollar store and brought me water and we wore masks the whole time. And she dropped off the water and, and walked away and I came and picked it up. So we were six feet apart the whole time. Like uh, we still made it work despite COVID. I still was able to accept help from strangers, even with COVID. That's really kind of makes you believe in people again a little bit. It really does. And I, that's another thing that I want to show is, you know, you get into internet land and there's so much, uh, stuff on the internet that that makes it feel like we should hate each other or that we do hate each other and when you get your head out of that and look around in the real world I didn't see any of that what an amazing experience how do you I'm gonna ask some maybe some weird questions now how do you handle personal hygiene when you're out there for like on the river for eight to ten hours a day you're not stopping at hotels every night you don't have access to a shower like how do you how do you deal with stuff when you're out there Right. So it's a river. It's a freshwater river. Uh, so I bathe in the river almost every single day. I uh, just take off all my clothes and jump in and soap up and do my stuff. And I, I'm just as clean. I mean, you might be a little, uh, actually, when you, when you dry off after being in, in the river, especially if it's a really muddy part of the river, you'll actually have like a fine layer of dust on you and you can kind of like wipe it off and see the dust come off, but you've cleaned your sweat off. You, you, yeah. you're hiding. It's just dust and that's fine. Uh, 
you know, I, I found hygiene was a lot harder when I was like bicycle touring uh, and you don't have access to the water all the time. So traveling on the river, hygiene was not a problem. And if you want to go further and talk about woman things, um, it, you know, I just, I used like a diva cup and, and, a, you know, and actually to be honest, um, since I'm out there by myself alone, uh, I'm actually a really heavy bleeder. So the diva cup doesn't really work. It overflows like super quick for me. And I would just like bleed onto my rowing seat. I'm like, no one's around, you know, yep. like, who cares? I'll, I'll just wash out. I'll just wash this pair of shorts at the end of the day. It's not, they're black. They're not going to stain, you know, there, there's no shame in free bleeding anytime, especially when you're alone. And so I'm like, you know, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, it, you, you find what's comfortable for you and you, you do, you, you, you just kind of make it work. And then I, I actually, I, I did a, a whole talk to a seventh grade class and I got a lot of these questions. So I'm, I'm not shy about it at all. Um, if they, the seventh grade class was like, how do you poop? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, well, it's a, it's a canoe and I, I just hang it, just hang my butt over the side and I don't carry toilet paper cause it's really hard to keep it dry. It's almost impossible really to keep a roll of toilet paper dry. And so you got the biggest bidet in the world right there. Splashy splash. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know? I, that's like toilet paper. I didn't even think about that. I did have the, you know, I was thinking like you probably just hung over and go in the water, but yeah, I didn't even think about toilet paper. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it works and it's like, right. like you said, you're out there by yourself. It, 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 it's 2020. We have a toilet paper shortage. Everyone's going to bidets now. <laughs> that's true <laughs> so what was your camp setup like because you know like you said you you were out there alone you no hotels you're like roughing it um did you like camp every night or how did you handle that yeah camped out every single night and i i wild camp uh uh it's called wild camping the french call it camping sauvage when I was wild camping in France. Uh, it's just basically where you find a place to sleep where you hope no one will bother you and tell you to leave. Um, and, you know, a lot of times it's private property, so it's not e exactly legal. Uh, but um, there is a rule on the river that as long as you're below the waterline, it's not it's anyone's property. So like a sandbar is anyone's property. because It's the river's property, really, um, because it is the river at some point. So if you stay below the waterline, um, it's actually pretty fine to camp. Uh, I actually have a rule when I'm camping, wild camping, that I will try to pick up at least one piece of trash from that campsite that's not mine. So, you know, the Boy Scout rule, you know, always leave the place better than when you found it. So even though I'm wild camping and possibly private property or possibly government property, um, if anyone comes up on my camp, uh, I, I, I can explain to them what I'm doing. And I've had, I've been approached by people sometimes. They're like, what are you doing here? you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and once I tell them what I'm doing and that I'm going to be gone in the morning and that I don't make fires and I clean up after myself and they kind of like see, you know, I'm very non-threatening. It's not like yeah. they're threatened by me. <laughs> if anything, I'm threatened by them. And so I've, I've always been able to kind of use my silver tongue to talk myself out of wild camping situations. But if you pay for a campsite, not only is it not possible because there's not campsites the whole way down you have to wild camp um because you just have to but if i did pay for a site every single night that's ten dollars a night minimum you know that that adds up real fast yeah oh so i just wild camp 
and make it work. Cow pastures, you, you deal with cows a lot. I, I've made friends with cows. I don't know, just make it work. Yeah. Yeah, that actually makes me wonder, how long did it actually take you to go down? Uh, well, first of all, the Missouri and, and second, the Mississippi. Uh, the Missouri took 100 days exactly. Didn't plan on it. Just happened to be 100 days. Um, last summer, the Mississippi from Lake Itasca, the headwaters, to St. Louis was about two and a half months. Um, and then this summer from St. Louis to East Texas was four and a half months. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's a long yeah, time. I did, I, did not, I did not plan on this trip this summer being so long, but I had four hurricanes to dodge. That's my, okay, so that was another question I had, was, like, how did you deal with storms? Like, what, because I, I heard um, you mention hurricanes before. Right, if it's just a regular storm, you just, you just find a hole like an animal does and just hunker, you know, and uh, set up your camp really well and everything. But if it's a hurricane, obviously, you can't, you can't camp out in a hurricane. You just can't. Yeah. You have to get off the water, uh, and you're either going to phone a friend or you're going to make a friend real fast. And that's what I did. So if I was in a place uh, like um, for, I think, Beta. For Beta, I was uh, on the Texas-Louisiana border. So I was actually only a mile and a half by car from my parents' house, uh, even though I was three weeks away by boat. <laughs> <laughs> so I was able to uh, go to my parents' house for one of them. But for Laura and Marco, I was way uh, in southeast Louisiana. And uh, I just I made friends. And... I, I usually it happens very organically, like people will see you rowing in the water and you've got all this gear, you're obviously going far and they're like, hey, you know, a hurricane's coming in like three days. And I'm like, yes, actually, I could use help. Do you mind? <laughs> you know, so usually it just happens. And I trust the trip gods to take care of me. And if it gets really bad, I can always phone a friend who will drive hours and hours to come get me because the river community helps each other. I, I've been known to drop everything I'm doing and go help a river traveler too. We just, we take care of each other. We look out for each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, it reminds me of like, you know, PCT hikers, Pacific Crest trail hikers. And, uh, you know, the, you end up with a family out there and yeah, they take really care do. of each other and help each other out. And that's, it's pretty incredible that, you know, those kinds of, adventures and expeditions and, and undertakings can lead to some really beautiful relationships and friendships. Um, yeah. And you could take it or leave it. Like I, I know, I've known some river travelers who after the end of their expedition, you never hear from them ever again, they just disappear. And then some of them are like me where it's like, I'm, I'm a forever family member. I'm, I am, I am part of that river rat community. I've, those are my people. Yeah. But then some people don't, they just, uh, they make friends and then you don't hear from them and that's fine too. Uh, but I, I chose to make those people my family. They're, 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 they're like right here for me. Yeah. <laughs> they, I, as they should be, I think. Yeah. I, I, I'm very much like, I think relationships and friendships, having people in your life that you can rely on and who can rely on you is so incredibly important. And, you know, that kind of like reliance on each other is, and, you know, being able to help each other out is such a beautiful thing. I think, I mean, we've covered a lot of what I wanted to talk to you about. Do you have anything that you want to add that you're like, I think this is important that I haven't thought of because I don't do those kinds of expeditions. Um, I, I think that if I were to just like 
give someone a piece of advice for anyone who's thinking about doing a river descent is that uh, don't get too hung up on the details. So I, ha I have another expedition friend of mine. Uh, her name is Janet Moreland. She did the three longest rivers in North America. And she gave me this talk one time around a campfire. And, and uh, you know, this is not my idea, but I'm, I'm going to try best I can. She said, in order to do any of these expeditions, you got to have the three Ds. And I was like, hit me. What are the three Ds? And so the first D, and it's important they go in order. The first D is the desire. And a lot of people have the first D, right? Oh, I've always wanted to do that. You know, you, you see a lot of people with the desire. The second D is the decision. And that's the most important D is to make the decision in your heart. Like really just say every waking moment, every day, I'm going to do something to make this happen. I'm going to physically move my body through space and make this happen. That's the decision. And that's the D that a lot of people don't make the commitment to have. And then the last D, and it's important that this one is the last one, is the details. If you have the desire and you've made the decision in your heart, the details are last. The details will figure it out. If you have those first two Ds, the details will happen. But the problem is people go desire straight to details. And then the de they get hung up on the details. They go, well, I, you know, I, I wanted to do this, but then I started doing research and I don't have enough money or I, I, don't, I don't have the experience or I don't have this, I don't have that. And they end up not doing it. But if you make the decision, then it doesn't matter what the details are. The, you, if you have that, that bee in your bonnet and you really have made the decision, you'll figure out the details. It's like uh, the, the next trip that I have planned around the world uh, that one is a huge one for details. That one, there's so many details. There's like uh, political details and uh, government details, customs, immigration, passports. There's so many details involved in that trip, but I've already made the decision, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, let's talk about your next big expedition since you brought it up. Um, <laughs> so... Give us the details. Uh, what is the next big thing? Um, right. So when you uh, think about what I've been doing the last four years of my life, it makes a lot of sense. If you go straight into it and you don't have the background, I look like the craziest person ever. Um, but I've been traveling down these rivers, and of course, all rivers end in the ocean. And uh, so now it's just obvious to me it's time to get a bigger boat and start doing some ocean rowing. And so I was thinking about what I wanted to do. I was like, well, now I'm in the ocean um, in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, I can do a lap of the Gulf of Mexico. That would be pretty cool. And then I was like, you know, if I do a lap of the Gulf of Mexico, when I get to the Yucatan, I'm probably going to want to keep going south. I'm probably not going to want to come back home. And if I keep going south from there, I can make it to Panama. If I make it to Panama, I can go through the Panama Canal. And now I'm in the Pacific. And if I'm in the Pacific, I can cross the Pacific if I'm in an ocean rowboat. And then if I do that, then now I'm in Australia and I could uh, go around Australia and go across the Indian. And then I'm actually pretty close to home. I just need to cross the Atlantic and now I'm back home and there's a circumnavigation. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my, That's I, my thought process. <laughs> I love your thought process because you're like, well, I'm not going to want to stop. So I may as well just keep going. And then I'm just going to be here. So I may as well just keep going. And, and I just, I love that so much. So yeah, that's a huge undertaking. When are you planning on doing that? 
Um, when I have enough money, I'm hoping on 2022. Uh, my boat is currently in the UK and I own only one quarter of it. So I need to get my boat, pay for the rest of my boat, get it kit kitted out for this trip. There needs to be some modifications done. Get it home, put the gear in, get enough money to have food. I'm just trying to get enough money to do, to get to like Australia. And then along the way, I'll, I hope to get more donors along the way. And this is, this has been a really interesting trip for me so far. I haven't even touched the ocean yet with my ocean robo. And this has already been a trip because I'm being really verbal about this trip. Uh, and I really have not been verbal about any of my expeditions. I'm actually a pretty private person in a lot of ways. And it's been really awesome to, to ha I feel like I'm, I'm making a difference in people's lives by just telling them about my dreams. And then people go, wow, you know, Ellen's doing her dream and it's like massive and seems impossible. Well, I can do my dream. And I, I literally, I have, I've had people reach out to me and be like, hey, you know, I, I took my bicycle out for the first time in three years because I thought, well, if Ellen can paddle down the Mississippi, I can take my bike to the grocery store, you know, or yeah, like, oh, I stopped at this random coffee shop that I've never been in because I drive by it all the time. And I just thought I might as well go to a new place. You know, just like things like that. And it just seems like such a small thing. But when I get those messages, it makes me want to reach out more. I, I quickly realized that this trip is, is, became bigger than me. It became bigger than my personal mission. It became about other people's dreams and other people's goals, all the dreams that they've had on the back burner, you know, just kind of showing them that it doesn't matter what your dream is. Look at mine. It's it's way more, I, I, you know, I bit off so much more than I can chew and I'm still going for it because it's my dream. And if I can do my dream, then maybe you can start doing your dream too. And it just, it, I realized that I could be a force for good in the world by telling people about it. Yeah, that can definitely snowball. I mean, even like you said, you know, those, those little things, like somebody took their bike out that they haven't taken out in three years. It's like you are by doing what you're doing, you're making a difference in other people's lives by inspiring them. And, you know, you can start this kind of snowball effect where they start doing more, they inspire other people around them. Um, and it, you know, hopefully it spreads. Yeah. I think the fact that I, you know, that this trip requires so much money to pull off um, and, and I'm reaching out so much more to people, that's part of my path because in reaching out, this trip became so much more about changing the world because in order i mean the, the society is made up of people if you want to change society you just have to change people and the only way that people are really going to change is if they want to so you have you, they have to see something that makes them want to change and i think this is part of my path to to show people what i'm doing yeah i think so too do you have any kind of crowdfunding set up for something like this can people donate to you to help you great kinda, like, question I, uh, th this is kind of like a watch this space sort of, uh, because there's a lot of uh, paperwork with the IRS that I'm currently uh, doing and that's currently going to the government system. So I can't legally start accepting donations yet, um, because of the government paperwork, but, uh, stay tuned kind of thing. It's, it's all happening in the background. I'm like, I'm just swamped every day on the computer doing, you know, I, I hate to be on the computer every day, but I have like, it's to be an ocean rower. It's not just 
knowing how to row an ocean, you also have to be a lawyer, you have to be a customs official, you have to be a financial advisor, social media expert, you have to be a lot of different roles in order to just row your boat. So I'm currently learning, I, I'm not a computer person, I, I just can't, I'm not, I mean, you saw me trying to do Zoom, uh, just, you know, and so I'm, I'm having to learn how to do a lot of things I don't want to learn how to do in order to make my dream work. So, uh, yeah, so just watch this. I'm, I'm currently working on it and uh, there will be a donate button soon. There's going to be merchandise. There's going to be stickers for sale. Um, there are stickers that you can design and put on my boat. There's going to be a whole thing, but it's, it's all happening in the background right now. Awesome. Awesome. I can't wait to see how this develops and I'll definitely be following along and, you know, as things develop, we'll, we'll share it on the women of the wild Instagram and, and website too. We made awesome. Well, right. Cool. Appreciate <laughs> um, it. Yeah. So I have one more question for you, possibly the most important question. What is your superpower? Oh, do you ask everyone that? I do. Yeah. <laughs> I think my superpower has something to do with being present and, and like being just here. Like I, I have a really hard time talking on the phone with, and like doing anything that's not real you know what i mean like if it's not like if i can't touch it and feel it and see it right here right now then i have a hard time with it but it's also my superpower because then i'm really tuned in to everything around me and i can uh listen and look and use my environment to my advantage and to everyone else's advantage i think it has something to do with people and environment and living in the now not quite sure yet always developing. Interesting question. Yeah. I like that idea of being present because I think a lot of people miss out on that. It's, it's an important thing. To this is the only thing that's real. The only thing that's real is what's happening right now. The past is, is in the past. The future is whatever it's going to be. The only thing that we really know is what's happening right now. That's the only thing. So it's all we, all we can do. That's so true. Well, if, if somebody wants to find you and follow along on your adventures, where can they find you? Um, so I've got a website, Ella Magellan Expeditions. Magellan is spelled just like Ferdinand Magellan. So Ella Magellan is my trail name. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, Ella Magellan Expeditions on the website and then Ella Magellan Expeditions on Instagram and on Facebook as well. Awesome. And I'll link to those I'm, in the show I'm notes. I'm going to have more. Yeah, I'm going to have more set up. I'm going to have Twitter and a YouTube and stuff. That's all in the works. Cool. Yeah. Let me know uh, when you have those ready and we'll link to those as well. Cool. So yeah, well, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I like, this is such a fun conversation and yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to see what you've got going on in the, the coming years. Me too. It's, it's going to be a blast. Yeah. It's just a, this something to do. I mean, we got to do something while we're here, you know, might as well do something for me or something that's never been done. And then something that like in turn can make other people's lives better. It's just, I can't, I, I, I'm just really thrilled with my path. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. It's an amazing feeling to have because I've, I've recently been feeling that too, like with what I've been doing. And I'm just like, I'm starting to get that feeling of like, you know, pinch me. Is this really happening? Yeah. Um, you know, am I really yeah. doing the things that I love? You know, like this is my, this is my life. Like what is happening? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's me. Every single day I wake up and I'm just like, this, I'm, my, my life is like a movie. It's like a dream. It's like I'm an actor in this movie. And I'm like, okay. 
<laughs> this is what's happening. I'm just gonna roll with it. <laughs> it's awesome. Well, that was really great to connect with you. I, I, yeah. I like I like how you think. I like the way that you're approaching it. I think it's really. I think I, ho- I hope that we stay in touch. Yes, I I think we will.